0: um, menstrual disturbance is sign of sort of the best early warning sign based on the evidence currently. So how, how would you know, like, what, what would you define as a menstrual disturbance for a woman who's, who's running and maybe not eating enough, um, but doesn't realize it because her, let's say her weight is steady and she feels okay. She just feels like she's training hard. How, what would she, um, what would be the, the sort of the warning light like to her that, um, her menstrual cycle is is disturbed and not just kind of natural fluctuations so without any test
1: kits or equipment or anything like that it's the regularity of their cycle how long the cycle is um, and yeah is it happening within the same sort of uh, so let's say a cycle is usually 30 days in length is it always within a five day window of that 30 day length or sometimes is it 38 sometimes is it 21? Um if you start to get irregular cycles like that that that's a sure sign um but my my gut would tell me that if 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 someone went immediately from eating enough to quite severely not eating enough, they would probably just just see an absence of menses right away okay so they may not get those long short irregular cycles not mm-hmm. just go straight into into that their their menses disappears altogether.
0: So it could be, I guess I may be speculating here, it could be like a spectrum where you see sort of smaller disturbances when energy availability is only slightly below what is needed and all the way up to complete absence of menstruation if the energy availability is severely below what is required and that's where... Hi guys, welcome back to the Adaptive Zone podcast. My name is Matthew Boyd. I'm a physiotherapist and running coach. If you enjoyed today's episode, please don't forget to like and subscribe. And if you're so inclined, share it with a friend. Today, we're going to be talking about bone health and menstrual cycles. So if you have ever suffered from shin splints or stress fractures, or you're a female runner who has irregular menstrual cycles, then you really need to listen to today's episode we're gonna be chatting with Mark Hudson, who's currently finishing up his PhD at Loughborough University looking at these subjects. So that's enough out of me, let's get into it. So Mark Hudson, welcome to the Adaptive Zone podcast. Thank you very much, pleasure to be here. So to start off with, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your professional work?
1: Sure, so um, I'm currently coming to the end of my, my PhD at Loughborough University. Um, I guess it started when I did an undergraduate at, at Liverpool John Moore's. Um, I did a master's straight after that in sports nutrition. And then um spent a couple of years travelling. During that time I, I worked as a performance nutrition consultant and I worked as a performance nutritionist before I went away. Um but after a year or two of doing that, I just um I decided that what I wanted to do was was get back into academia and back into research. So I started the PhD at Loughborough. Um, brings us to here near the end and looking forward to
0: what what the next chapter brings so when when do you hope to finish the phd
1: um
0: I, I should finish by october
1: for sure um careful of whether my supervisor listens to this or not but i should i should be able to finish a good bit before that if i, <laughs> know, if I really spent spent the whole time writing but it's I was in the lab this morning, and I've only got a few sessions left of data collection, and then it's all up to me, really.
0: Okay, and I presume that because um, we connected, because I'd read a couple of studies by you, and I, I presume that that is what you're doing your your PhD about. So, could you tell us a little bit about you know the the subject of your PhD?
1: Sure. So, the overarching subject is low energy availability and its effect on health health and performance, essentially. We're focusing primarily on bone health and on vascular health. Um, And in the bone health side of things, we're also looking at a brief exercise intervention, which might help mitigate some of the effects that you see on bone.
0: Right, okay. And so um, just to sort of bring the listener up to speed a little bit before we sort of dig into your research, could you just sort of give us a quick summary about, you know, what is... What's the trouble with bone? What, uh, what kind of bone injuries do runners particularly suffer from?
1: I guess anyone can get a bone injury if the force is great enough and, and you get a traumatic fracture, um, which people will probably know the most about. But runners, particularly distance runners, are at an increased risk for bone stress injury um, just because of the way those those stress injuries manifest. Um and then you've got a number of things on top of that which can change the, the stability, the strength of bone, um, which will either increase or decrease the, the risk of injury as well. And low energy availability is one of those factors.
0: Okay. And, and what is the, the most common run, bone stress injury for runners to get? You typically see anything
1: that's close to the point of impact is, is most common. So anything around the foot or the tibia um, particularly the lower half of the tibia. Okay. Um, you see them elsewhere as well, but they're, they're typically most common close to that, close to the point of ground impact.
0: Okay. And so are these, um, fractures, are they stress fractures? Are they, um, you know, like shin splints? How do, how do, how does all that sort of sit? So as, as, as far as my knowledge
1: goes on the term shin splints, uh, To me, that is a stress fracture. Stress fracture can occur anywhere along a continuum, really, from just a a localized area of the bone that's got a temporary area of weakness and and lots of um, bone turnover activity going on, which we'll we'll maybe go on to describe after this. It can go anywhere from that point where you might feel no pain or just a slight niggle uh, all the way along to a a full cortical fracture of the bone. Um, And they tend
0: to... Progress
1: gradually along that continuum until they reach a point where the pain is too great or the bone snaps.
0: And why why does this happen? I guess that's a big question, but basically, um, yeah, why does this
1: happen? We, yeah, big 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 enough question, but answerable. Um, so, will you stick with runners as an example because that's that's probably going to be the primary audience we're speaking to? Um, in running, you've got this situation where you've got repetitive impact with the ground. The impact's not necessarily large, um, but you get it over and over again. You may have a rest of probably maximum a day if you're, if you're properly training runner and then, and you go again, but mostly it's not even a day's rest. And then, then you go for another long mm-hmm. stint of repeated impact. Um, and we mentioned before there, the way these injuries progress is that they start with a, um, a focal point where that the impact is putting a strain on the bone um, you get a gradual you get a, a temporary area of weakness. if you then continue to put that loading stimulus onto that same local point of weakness that exacerbates and, and you end up with micro cracks that start to coalesce and, and join into a larger injury. Um, but to really understand sort of the etiology behind them, you sort of need to talk about how bone adapts. To loading. Um, So the way it does that is once you put a stimulus on bone, and we talk, if we talk about a really specific point on, on one bone, um, it senses the area of strain. You then get cells that come in and break, break bone down on that area called osteoclasts. And in that place, um, osteoblasts come in and they lay down new bone. But that process takes time. So what you get when you continually Hit that point on the bone with the same stimulus, um, is you get a lot of osteoclast bone resorbing activity in that area, and if you continue to do it without enough rest in between in between runs, um, that area of breakdown will will just continue to multiply uh, without time okay. to lay down new bone. So you get this sort of temporary temporary area of weakness. It's then more susceptible to micro damage, which which um, sort of has a knock on effect moving forwards.
0: And is that the training effect when it happens correctly? So say you run, you cause a bit of damage to your, let's say your shin bone and you get that osteoclast activity that you mentioned and it breaks down the bone a little bit. And then over the next, let's say, uh, 24 to 48 hours, I don't know how long it takes, but the osteoblasts come in and they sort of rebuild the, the bone and they make it a bit stronger because of that training stimulus is this the sort of is this what we want to happen most of the time
1: yes that's a healthy way that the bone adapts okay. to loading yeah um so that micro damage in the osteoclast activity is not necessarily a bad thing in fact it's definitely a good thing because it's the way okay. that adapts to loading um but it's that consistent application without enough rest um between runs For the bone to recover before you then go and
0: do it again okay Uh, so in a normal circumstance or in an ideal circumstance this is what would be happening during the course of let's say uh, a 20-week training program is you you put stress on the bone you cause some damage you rest it it sort of builds back stronger and then if you take someone who let's say they haven't run a marathon before and they just get up one day and go run 42 kilometers then their bones won't have been through that process and they're almost you know they're very likely to break down to such a degree that they would develop either a stress reaction or a stress fracture in in let's say their tibia or maybe one of their foot bones and that's that's what we want to avoid versus what is you know ideal
1: absolutely Uh,
0: and in that situation
1: if someone just goes and runs a marathon and they don't run you might well find that they start experiencing those symptoms during the run because Hmm. their bones just aren't adapted to that anywhere near to the magnitude they need to be. And it can start to occur that quickly where you start to get areas of pain and stuff within the marathon.
0: Right, okay. And so you mentioned a couple of times this term, low energy availability. Could you explain what that is to us and then sort of how that links into this this bone stuff we're talking about? Sure. So...
1: Um, in the simplest terms possible, low energy availability is when your body doesn't have enough energy left over after exercise um, to fuel all the rest of its processes that it needs to do um, optimally. So as a formula, it would look like energy intake. So that's everything you eat during the day minus exercise energy expenditure. That's the energy that you've spended only in planned exercise. Um, and it's usually expressed relative. To, they're a relative to fat-free mass.
0: Okay. So isn't that a good thing? I thought that's what. I thought that's what we wanted to get lean. We we re- spend more energy than we take in, and then we get lean and we look great and we perform. <laughs> so what what goes wrong? <laughs> to a point, but
1: you can't keep under fueling a system; otherwise, it runs out. And it, okay.
0: And is is there? So is the issue sort of this chronic underfueling, like uh, long term, or or can this happen, you know, in, uh, let's say a month or two? Um, mm-hmm. So we actually start to see changes associated with
1: low energy availability within three to five days. Um, okay, but those would just be like um, sort of acute hormonal changes, um, and they're typically reversed just as quickly as they as they um, they happen. Um, so not necessarily bad. Um, but those changes in, in, uh, mostly endocrine hormones, which are hormones that are released from somewhere in the body and they have an effect somewhere else on some other tissue or organ. Um, they show us or give us a sign about what then starts to happen if you stay in this state for weeks or months. Um, uh, so you, then you start to see suppression of certain systems like okay. uh, reproductive function and bone maintenance and um, possibly cardiovascular function so essentially what the body's doing there is is if you continue to underfuel it it starts to regulate the amount of energy that's used in other processes um, reduce the amount of energy that's used in those processes so that it can maintain a level of homeostasis maintain some balance
0: okay and this is a a tricky one for me to wrap my head around. So why, why doesn't the body, you know, we've got all these fat stores. So presumably we have some energy stored somewhere. Why doesn't the body just go and grab that and, and use that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's a funny one. And there isn't much research that's done in people who are overweight or obese. Right. And there is some suggestion that if you do have plenty of excess body fat, there may be some protection against these sort of effects. But typically okay. in the conditions that are at risk of low energy availability are people that are expend lots of energy. Um right. You know, like endurance athletes mainly, like runners or, or any kind of athlete or exercisers who typically will already be quite lean. Okay. Um, so the body's already near that sort of level of healthy body fat. Um, it maybe doesn't want to take any more away from that.
0: So this low energy availability... Um, I don't don't know if this is the case or not but is this something that should be more concerning to people whose sort of BMI sort of falls within the ideal range for their demographic anyway that they're the people who should be wary of this low energy availability or is does it yeah or do we not know how my gut would say yes okay simply we no we don't know the research isn't
1: there to be able to to answer that question but um, for the reason that you suggested earlier, my gut would say, yes, they're the people definitely that are at more risk. Um, you can sort of think of it as like, let's say someone who eats too much for a long period of time, um, they will start to have poor health consequences because they've gone too far in one direction. Mm-hmm. The same essentially starts to happen in the other direction. Well, okay. um, if you've already spent a long time in one direction and then you start to underfuel. that's probably going to be beneficial up to a certain point until you go too far and it starts happening in the opposite direction um so it's sort of a the way i look at it is a scale and you can go either way um and that sort of reconciles why in some research you, you see that energy restriction has beneficial effects on markers of health mm-hmm. especially in overweight, overweight and obese populations because
0: it's bringing them back towards that baseline. Right. Okay. Yeah. So it it depends kind of where you are on this on this particular spectrum of how much uh, energy storage you have on your body. And if you're closer to than to sort of somewhat normal physiological ideal or optimal range, then having low energy availability, so not enough calories and too much training, is a problem. But if you have lots of energy stored, then you. You, you maybe have a little bit more room for error. Yes,
1: yeah. If you've got a lot of energy stored because you've had too, let's say, too much energy availability for some time, so your body's been storing, storing it away, yeah, reducing it's probably going to bring you back to that your your baseline or wherever that may be. Um, and it's not just in, in my area of research or physiology that this concept comes about as well. There's um, a few different theories in, in evolutionary biology where they, they're looking at something similar too
0: and so what type of you know if we if we stick to the the group who acquire low energy availability how does that relate to bone injuries that you were talking about earlier
1: so we we stated there that when your body is low on energy for a certain period of time what it does is by some sort of evolutionary thing that's left over in us it starts to downregulate the, the function of certain processes so that it can maintain some balance. Um, and in the, these evolutionary theories that I was mentioning, what they propose is that it down regulates systems that are deemed in that moment to be less vital for survival, which, which would make perfect sense. Um, and it seems like, um, the maintenance of bone and the bone cell activity is one of those, one of those systems that gets down regulated. Um, so what you typically see in this, uh, what we can measure in the blood is markers of osteoclast and osteoblast activity, which we mentioned earlier. Um, and within sort of the same time period you mentioned earlier, three to five days, you start to see, um, certainly a decrease in bone formation and possibly an increase in, in bone breakdown.
0: Okay. So I guess my sort of, um, simplistic way of thinking about it would be if the body's like well you're doing loads of exercise and expending lots of calories and you're not taking enough in you're not replacing them so i'm going to focus on short-term things so i'm not going to waste my money on building bones i'm going to spend it on other stuff like uh moving (laughs) and uh, breathing (laughs) yeah 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 And, and if you think um
1: in those evolutionary terms which is which is a good way to think it sort of puts this all this it helps it make sense um in times where food wasn't available their primary goal would be to expend energy to find it not to expend okay. energy you know repairing their bones or on their reproductive function which they're not thinking about when they're close to starvation so essentially yeah, it's, that's what doing it's partitioning, okay. partitioning energy
0: to, to the, the systems that are most
1: vital for survival
0: yeah, because we kind of think of it in our current situation where you just go to the shop and get some food, but if uh if you're in a situation where there is no food, then you know there's, there's no point having good, strong, healthy tibia bones if you can't like run after the antelope you try to chase or whatever. You have to go get it first. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. And what's really interesting is there there isn't many studies on it yet, but there's a few that have done sort of three or five days of low energy availability and then a performance test. And it doesn't seem to be impacted too much.
0: Huh. Yeah. Because um, it's, it's that short term systems have been maintained at the expense yeah. of long term projects like born health. And, yeah. and you mentioned, and I know you talk about it in your studies a lot, um, menstrual cycle uh, disturbances. So, is this one of the other systems that you were saying is, you know, an, uh, is this like an early sign of uh, low? energy availability when you see menstrual cycle or hormonal changes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's the best one we've got um, in terms of overt signals for someone that's been suffering from low energy availability for uh, weeks or months is is menstrual function. It's also got the best evidence to support it. So there's, there's controlled studies for um, months that track people and, and they see these menstrual Uh, menstrual disturbances start to set in from the early hormonal signs, right to, um, they're now having non-ovulatory cycles or not having a cycle at all.
0: I see. So is this a problem that principally affects women or only affects women, or is this a problem for guys too? Uh,
1: at the moment, we're sort of at the point where we can see that men also have low energy availability. Um, It's there within samples of male athletes, whether it affects them to the same extent as women or not is still sort of up for debate, Um, especially in the short term studies. Men seem to be a little more robust. Um, Some explanations for that sort of link to how much energy it costs to maintain men's reproductive function versus uh, women's reproductive function. Um, Women's being a greater expense, uh, energetic cost wise than men's. So perhaps that has something to do with it. Um, I see. But it could be anything really. But it seems like possibly men are more robust. But that's only going to be up to a point.
0: Um, Yeah. If you
1: underfuel something by enough for long enough, it's going to have some sort of effect somewhere.
0: And you were saying that uh, menstrual disturbance is sort of the best early warning sign based on the evidence currently. So how how would you know, like what, what would you define as a menstrual disturbance for a woman who's... Who's running and maybe not eating enough, um, but doesn't realize it because, her let's say, her weight is steady and she feels okay. She just feels like she's training hard. How? What would she? Um, what would be the the sort of the warning light like to her that um, her menstrual cycle is is disturbed and not just kind of natural fluctuations. So, without any test kits or equipment or anything like that,
1: it's the regularity of their cycle, how long the cycle is. Um, and yeah is it happening within the same sort of uh so let's say a cycle is usually 30 days in length is it always within a five-day window of that 30-day length or sometimes is it 38 sometimes is it 21 um if you start to get irregular cycles like that that that's a sure sign um but my my gut would tell me that if 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 someone went immediately from eating enough to quite severely not eating enough they would probably just just see an absence of menses right away you know? okay so they may not get those long short irregular cycles mm-hmm. just go straight into into that their, their her menses disappears altogether
0: so it could be i guess i may be speculating here it could be like a spectrum where you see sort of smaller disturbances when their energy availability is only slightly below what is needed and all the way up to complete absence of menstruation if the energy availability is severely below what is required, and that's where you know you hear about athletes to prof- professionals, particularly. It's been in the media a lot more in recent years, where they haven't had a period in like years, and you know they they didn't even realize it was a problem. They believed that this was just normal. So, is that is that normal? Is that acceptable? Is that something that you can do for a period, or does this have you know serious health implications uh
1: it's it's absolutely not normal um it is something that you can do without serious health implications on a short-term basis but for me when that sign comes that's when something needs to be done about it right um, before anything more serious starts to set in um that disturbance of of menstrual function is reversible uh, Mm as far as we know to a point um but things like um, osteoporosis, which would then happen when, if you stay in that situation for months to years, um, which is severely low bone density and low bone strength, that almost becomes irreversible, um, particularly as you get older. So yes, it's possible to be in that situation. No, it's not normal, but it's a sure sign that, that something needs to be done to recover it.
0: Yeah, so it's it's a it's really it's a it's a red light. It's like no, this yeah. isn't this isn't okay. This isn't something you can put up with for a time. Like you don't have to be super worried if it's happened to you, but you do have to take action and address it. And you yeah. and you shouldn't just accept it because it does have in uh, in the medium and long term serious um, consequences.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's funny that I mean that's the difference when you start to you compare like the the evolutionary theories we were talking to to the physiology ones um the evolutionists would say that those changes are for your benefit because ultimately they're they're helping you survive for as long as they can but it's at the it's at the cost of optimal health, which is what yeah. the physiologist would be more interested in yeah
0: but well, there's often this sort of uh playoff where really um, some evolutionary changes are, are really interested in gene propagation really so it's like yeah. you have to live long enough to have your kids and make sure they survive but who cares after that you know we yeah. we don't think like that anymore we're like i want a good hundred years i would have run my marathon on my 95th birthday right so, exactly, <laughs> so um, yeah. we and have a different standard <laughs> sorry especially for athletes as well yeah and ball. so th- th- i didn't really sort of drill down on this earlier and i wanted to you know who should be concerned about this is this um is this just women or is this mostly women and is this you know teenagers 20s 30s 40s like all of them um who who listening should be paying attention to this uh, particularly the early warning sign of the menstrual cycle as a sign of uh, not getting sufficient calories um potentially anyone can
1: can have low energy availability um it's much more likely for athletes to have it consistently um, than than just like a recreational uh recreationally competitive runner or something like that but um anyone could be at risk of it in terms of the the menstrual disturbances uh of course that, that's only going to apply to women who aren't using hormonal contraception or or aren't pregnant or haven't got any other reason why their menstrual function might be might be impacted by any other pathology or anything like that so um it's a great signal in the women who you can use it in but that's only going to be 50% of the population maybe maybe mm-hmm. less
0: but they are the ones who are more prone to these problems it it seems that way yeah okay. yeah um it seems like
1: at the same level of energy availability on average um females would are more susceptible than males um but I'll I'll make sure that I've quite clearly said seems
0: that because I'm okay. not completely
1: sold on that yet, but it okay, certainly seems that way.
0: Well, it's only recently, to my mind, uh, at least in uh, sort of more popular media, become a specific area of focus and, and study. I know it has been studied for a long time, but it, it's become more. Um, you hear about it, talked about uh, on mm. on on the news and things like that now, whereas you know before it was sort of. Um, discussed in academia and that was about it um so we're not potentially in a place where we know all the answers for for men women for all ages but everybody should be aware that it's a thing that happens something i wondered because i get this a lot with with my runners um and it's not it's not just the women it's the men as well they use running as a way to lose weight because it's recreational runners and it's not a lot of weight it's not like if you if you looked at them on a bmi chart they'd be in that like ideal category, but they're like, I want to lose five pounds. I want to lose 10 pounds. And at the same time, I want to ramp up my training and, you know, do my marathon. And I think what they might be thinking when they listen to this is, well, it's okay. Cause I've still got that five pounds of fat. So I can't have low energy availability because I can see my energy in my love handle. So it's there, mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah. can this happen to people even who are, you know, to their mind carrying a few extra pounds Or does it only happen on the, you know, people who are like, you can, you know, the super skinny and look almost kind of um, emaciated kind of thing? You know, who does this happen to? Mm. Um, My
1: suggestion would be it can happen to anyone. Most of the research so far is in relatively lean, um, young, healthy, mostly women. Um, But... Because of the way the body adapts to these periods of low energy availability, what it essentially does is reduce the amount of energy your body uses. So let's say you start in balance with expenditure and and intake. If you reduce your energy intake by however much, um, those adaptations are trying to bring that energy expenditure back down to that level. So theoretically someone can be can have low energy availability because some of those processes aren't functioning optimally, but they will they will stay weight stable because right. they're in energy balance. Which okay. is where the two concepts of energy availability and energy balance differ. Um I energy see. balance is just an output from the system, what's left yeah. after everything's taken account of. Whereas energy availability is an input, this is what you've got to use, use it how you will
0: If I try and put that in again more simple terms for me to understand it's like okay you've got these stores but you you've been running a deficit in energy for a while now so i'm just going to leave those stores there and i'm going to let i'm going to not repair your bones i'm going to not produce um a menstrual cycle maybe some other things that i'm not going to attend to um i'm just going to leave the stores there for a really day because you keep doing this and i'm going to not focus on all these things that are important for the long term and then we'll be good. <laughs> is that, is yeah. that, is that yeah, a narrative I'm, of what's going on?
1: I'm not going to pay my employees, so now the store's in balance. That's okay.
0: Actually, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. good in the short term, but in the long term, it might not work. Yes. And,
1: and someone can stay, their weight may stay the same. So that, yeah. that's the point really I was trying to make is that, is that someone's weight could stay stable, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the rest of their their bodily processes are functioning optimally um and that might be quite depressing to some people who are trying to lose weight i think um so the way to do it is is low and gradually rather than trying to shock the system and do it in in short quick bursts
0: yeah uh you you might be losing weight but you're losing weight from your boards is (laughs) that yeah possibly possibly um I mean, I sort of led you into that question a little bit because this I have, I come across this all the time, like it is in the last couple of years, I've started paying more attention to it. And it is unbelievably um, prevalent that runners are getting, you know, bone stress injuries and tendon repetitive stress injuries in different places. At different times over the years and it's been going on for years and they're they're trying to lose weight and they're not losing weight their their weight is staying the same but they're getting all these injuries and i'm thinking this is an energy availability problem potentially um and and then i that's how i came across your stuff and and other stuff like Mm -hmm. it is like how do i know and i guess what you're saying is menstrual disturbance is a really good sign for women it's a good way to know even if you're not losing weight that you might not have enough energy availability. So I guess we're getting a little speculative because I know this isn't necessarily what you talked about in your studies, but if it's like, okay, you bring the energy back up for a time and we get reestablishment of these normal processes. So we're looking after our bones and we've got menstruation going on again in a normal way. Then if you run a slight deficit for a long time, then your body may start to draw on fat stores. And then if you wanted to lose those five pounds or whatever, it may happen, but you have to re-establish balance first. Is there any evidence for this, or am I just kind of um, speculating? <laughs> I think you could probably bring parts from all sorts of different studies
1: to put that picture together. Okay. Um, but as far as a single study goes that shows that sort of a trajectory, I'm not aware of it. I am aware of a study which um, brought about resumed a resumed menstrual cycle in people who were previously amenorrheic so didn't mm-hmm. have a menstrual cycle um within three months just by increasing daily intake by around three to four hundred calories a day
0: right did they gain weight good question i'll probably look at that after the call actually <laughs> <laughs> no because that's what my athletes are going to think they're like if they get wet i don't care <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: I, I guess what you what you might theoretically expect to see is some a small gain in weight short term, which then quite quickly starts to slow down and you reach a new new balance. Um, yeah, because
0: the, the system wants to be in balance, right? If you're expending yeah. energy all the time, it wants you to take in that amount, basically with a slight fluctuation. So if you if you reestablish normal and then keep your expenditure the same then you would expect the, the, the two to come into line, the amount of energy available in your body versus what you're uh, taking in versus what you're putting out.
1: Yeah. Um, and it might be, unfortunately, that someone is just naturally that weight. Um, yeah. And I would argue that it's better to be a kilogram or two heavier and be able to train consistently than it is to be a kilogram or two lighter but be off with injuries and illnesses constantly
0: yeah and um, performance wise, you know because there's often sort of getting to race weight type concerns for more uh, more elite and professional or competitive runners, and then there is you know the for the more recreational runners amongst us, it's um looking trim for the summer and just feeling good about yourself but um the, you, you gotta offset that against the fact that if you're not if you don't have healthy bones, healthy menstruation you are going to be injured a lot more so you're going to perform worse because you're not consistently training and that's something i see a lot um and that's amongst recreational runners as well as those who are more competitive but i have seen it in those younger athletes who ran at college or whatever but they kind of couldn't really do it because they were just out with injuries all the time um and and then you know um, I forget where I was going with that, but <laughs> something I did want to touch on because it, uh, it was a surprising statistic to me. I'm going to quote it from your study.
1: There's it. I'll add something. Hold that thought. I'll add something yeah. on that conversation before we jump on to the next one. Is that, that The solution might be to that is to do something similar to what they do, let's say, in, in boxing and in horse racing, maybe not quite so severely, but to train at a weight and then a month before you run in, a, in an important race drop your weight and stay at that for a month and then recover after the race.
0: Okay. Might be so that, that would address the this yeah, yeah. weight. Um, yeah. yeah both and it, is that how uh, sort of elite athletes are approaching this now? Now that awareness of this problem is uh, becoming more apparent? I'd like
1: to, I'd like to think so. Um, the answer probably is no, but for the mm-hmm. most part. Um, I think it would probably take a lot longer than this for it to start to um, be like general practice. Um, but in those weight category sports, there've been a few case studies that, that sort of show that, um, as long as you, as long as you don't stay in that situation for too long, you can come out of it exactly as how you went into it.
0: Okay. Okay. So, but potentially, you know, working with your doctor, physiotherapist, dietitian, nutritionist, um, you know, to try and make sure that you're doing this in a sensible way yeah, uh, would be the, the better approach. Sure. The, the surprising things I read, um, yeah. in your, it was more in the introduction as a result, endurance athletes are at high risk of low energy availability with approximately 31% of female distance runners and 25% of males report to suffer from this condition during training. So a third or a quarter of endurance athletes have less energy available than they need is, is this um i don't know if you remember that particular reference but is this like is this elites is this competitive runners is this recreational runners is this yeah, everybody I, I do
1: i do know this reference so this um was a, a, like elite and world class um okay. distance runners and race walkers um, and they were in a training camp at the time so they'll be pushing themselves pretty hard Okay. Um, I would suggest that those numbers aren't very surprising in, in compared to some of the other numbers that I've seen. Um, percentages go up as high as 50, 60% in some studies, but they also go as low as naught to 10% in other studies. Um, so it varies and that one's probably falls somewhere, somewhere in the middle. Right. Um, the difficulty with the, the prevalence studies for low energy availability is how you measure it, which is really, really tricky. Um, and you get a lot of variation just depending on what method you choose to measure
0: it. So what is like menstrual disturbance one method or is it is it do you look more at calorie counting? like how do you? Menstrual function
1: is one method, and at the moment personally that's that's my preferred method to look at prevalence because um, you've got a nice window where they they've been suffering from this for at least weeks to months. Um, so you know in those people it is an issue or becoming an issue. Um, the other alternative is, like you said, to to estimate energy intake and expenditure, which is super difficult. I don't know if anyone's mm. ever done it that's listening, but it's really, really tough to do accurately. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, of course, you only do that for sort of three to seven days. Um, so you only get a snapshot look at what the energy availability is. And if it's only been like that for those three to seven days, like in a training camp, then it may be no issue at all um mm. so not only have you got how good is the measurement method at actually measuring what it's trying to measure you've also got um at what point along the the spectrum of low energy availability is it is it falling and, and are, is what we're measuring even a problem um, right. So for example you could measure changing in hormones but we know that that happens within three to five days and comes back just as quickly so is that really an issue or a prevalence of low energy availability? I, I would argue probably not. it's just a short-term response to something.
0: Um, okay, so well, our I'm, sign yeah. our sign is the menstrual disturbance, particularly in women, obviously it's more difficult mm-hmm. in men um, yeah. because yeah. I was wondering about hormone testing and I was like, how would you how would you set it up and how do you know if this is a normal level for that person? do you mm-hmm. have to do a series? But I think what you're saying is that hormone testing isn't a useful way. Uh, At least, you know, for the people listening to this show who are going to be working with their physios and their doctors, hormone testing is not the way, but tracking your menstrual cycle is a better
1: way. Hormone testing, you just, for any regular person, you wouldn't be able to do it often enough for it to be useful. Right. Someday it'll be on my watch. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. Someday it'll be great, yeah. (laughs) Say I've been in this state for five days, I need to switch it around a little bit. Yeah, mean. we'll
0: ignore that too. Yeah. <laughs> Another um, concerning uh, statistic you quoted was the highest prevalence of menstrual disturbance is observed in sports emphasizing leanness and endurance sports such as running, where it may be as high as 50 to 65%. Again, is that in the elite group? Are, are these, you know, is, Should I be expecting half of my female runners who come in to have menstrual disturbance? Yeah, I guess it
1: depends what level of female runners that you primarily work with. But, um, most of those studies, because menstrual disturbance is quite an easy, overt thing to measure, um, a lot of those studies are done in quite high, high performance populations because they're willing to come in and do whatever they need to do to be part of the study. Whereas okay. studies where you've got multiple visits, multiple blood draws, some sort of intervention, you, you don't really see them done in elite performers because they're not willing to do it. But mm-hmm. a lot of those studies where you're looking at prevalence of menstrual disturbance are done in, in quite high performing populations. Um, there are some that are done in more recreational populations and the pre- prevalence
0: seems to be a little bit lower. What, uh, what type of uh, amount?
1: I wouldn't know off the top of my head. Okay. you have to check the figures. Um, I just remember putting together a table and seeing that on average the, number, the values were a little bit lower. Um. But again, when you, you talk about everyday people, it depends, you know, how often do they train? How much do they eat? Um, yeah, it depends on, it depends on the person. I don't think there's anything inherent about being high performance, possibly apart from the pressure to keep a, a low weight for race, uh, racing purposes. Um, but, and like I know plenty of recreational runners that, that whose weekly mileage is way up there with what competitive performers would be. So they would mm. be at just as much risk as, anyone
0: that competes competitively yeah and i I think the thing is it what i'm getting from what you're saying is this can kind of happen to anyone because i sort of originally you know a few years back when i started reading about this i thought you know this is a problem for those people who they come in and you get the vibe they're a little bit obsessive they're extremely thin they train Mm -hmm. every single day and they train for multiple hours a day in a variety of sports but i'm I'm sort of changing my mind now on that and, and what i'm getting is that this can be much more common than we maybe realized before and it might not be that obvious that um someone has low energy availability it might be a little bit more hidden
1: mm-hmm. yeah i think so and recruiting for this study we're running at the moment so we, we we need people who are who currently have a regular menstrual cycle um so that they're not already in, in any sort of state of low energy availability before they come into the lab. um and I was surprised by the amount of people who who don't fit that criteria. Right. And, uh, yeah, it was more than I I anticipated it might be.
0: Okay. And uh you had mentioned in your in your study something about um the contraceptive pill and how that might interfere with using menstruation as a way to track um whether your energy availability is uh sufficient. Uh could you tell us a little more about that? Sure. So, um essentially it would it would render
1: the sign of menstrual function useless because what an, what an oral contraceptive would do is provide a short burst of synthetic hormone when you take the pill um, for most of your menstrual cycle. And what that does is suppress the, the release of that hormone within you.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So you have like um, a profile of daily hormones where you get a spike of these synthetic ones, but your, your, endogen- your endogenously produced version of that hormone stays low. Um, then when you, you stop taking the pill for a week or however long it is, or you carry on taking the pill, but it hasn't got any of the synthetic hormone in it, um, which is the way most of the pills, pill cycles work, uh, you then get an artificial menstrual bleed, which is just a withdrawal bleed because you've stopped taking the pill. Um, so some doctors will say that it artificially regulates your menstrual cycle, which is not strictly true. It artificially yeah. regulates when you bleed but it does not artificially
0: regulate the cycle of hormones yeah. within the menstrual cycle. Yeah, I guess what the, the way I was thinking of it, if, if menstruation regularity and behavior is the little warning light on the dashboard of your car, all you're doing with the pill is just like turning the light off or just like covering it over. You're, yeah. you're not really, the, the problem is still there. There's not enough energy available to keep your bones healthy and to have a healthy menstrual cycle. and these other things. And um, it's, it's just that you don't have that warning anymore.
1: That's that's spot on. Yeah, a good analogy of
0: it. So it's it's not a good strategy to use the contraceptive pill as a way to address this issue. It's not going to address it in any way, not
1: in any way at all.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And and so what are you looking at with your research in the at the minute?
1: So at the minute, this study that we're coming to the end of is is looking at a short period of low energy availability to replicate some of the other studies that have already been done um, on how it affects those markers of bone turnover, so the markers of uh, osteoblast and osteoclast activity. Um, but in some of our participants, in the morning and the evening, they're also doing a short high-impact jumping routine to see if we can offset some of those those effects that seem to occur in response to low energy availability. Um, the idea being that we can give bone a stimulus, which would theoretically drive bone formation. Um, see if we can offset some of the effects of, of low energy availability. And uh, since since starting the study and speaking to a few few colleagues, um, another suggestion is that going back to the the evolution example is that it it puts giving the bone some sort of stimulus like jumping, puts it further up that hierarchy of how important it becomes. Um, So the body may then start to divert more energy towards the maintenance of bone health. Um, Yeah, we'll stop there for now, and I'll see if you've got any questions before I carry
0: on talking about it. So why would the jumping help?
1: So we we already know that um, bone responds to to high impact loading and it doesn't need too many repetitions before it starts to become close to its its maximum adaptive response um there's there's a lot of animal studies on on that bone response whereby you you, you do like um 36 impact reps and then they compared it to like 200 400 600 reps and there's no extra benefit beyond 36 um, so essentially bone starts to become desensitized to that stimulus after a while. So if we go back to the running example, if you've got desensitized to the adapt- adaptive stimulus, but you carry on even the impact, you're still creating possibly some of that micro damage from running, but you're not getting any adaptive stimulus. Okay. Whereas with impact loading, you, you do a few high impact reps, which drive the, drive the bone, bone adaptation, uh, and then you stop. The benefit of that is that it's not going to cost much energy. So if someone's already in a state of low energy availability, um, they can use this sort of tool to stimulate bone uh, without without exacerbating the original issue, which is the fact that they haven't got much energy available.
0: And so what kind of exercises are you using in your study? But we're using counter-movement jumps and drop jumps. Um,
1: so the drop jumps are just to create a little bit more impact. You're coming off a... 40 centimeter box, um, and this is without shoes and socks on, onto a hard floor, and then going straight into a counter movement jump. Mm-hmm. Um, you also get a little bit of um, sort of uh, it loading from the ground reaction force from, from the side, so you're not just getting it vertically upwards. There's some multi directional things in there as well, which seems to improve the, the stimulus for bone.
0: So you have them um, drop off a box and jump. And you do yeah. that, like, three sets of 12 or something? Or?
1: We do um, two sets of five in each direction. So one set of five facing one way. Uh, and there's 10 seconds rest between each jump, so the intensity is pretty low. But each jump is maximum effort. Uh, but you get 10 seconds in between each one. Uh, we mm-hmm. then got minutes rest after the first set of five, and then we do the next set of five in the other direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and we then got two sets of five just regular counter movement jumps from the floor um but that's not i I don't know if that's the best way to do it or not yeah yeah what in the design of that exercise intervention we was trying to get as much as we can for as little energy cost as possible
0: Hmm. and are you the only person who's looked at this so far so there's no other studies you can look at and say well we know this kind of thing works
1: so we are the first people to look at how this might work during states of low energy availability okay. to mitigate the effects on bone. There are other people that have looked at the effect of these interventions just uh, without considering energy availability
0: okay. uh, in,
1: in people that aren't athletes. So right. um, there's a lot of research in, in older populations with uh, like um, hopping exercises. Um, there's also some in, in younger women where they do just um, two or th- three or four sets of 20 jumps a week for a long period of time. And you actually see changes structurally in bone. So from like uh, Dexa images, you see increased bone density.
0: Okay. So theoretically, it makes sense that this could help with bone health. The yeah. only issue is if you are in a state of low energy availability, does it work under those circumstances? Because things go a little bit awry under those circumstances yeah
1: th- that's that's one thing and the other thing is do we've seen that these kind of exercise interventions benefit markers like bone density so when you look at a bone and you look at, at how strong it is basically based on markers you, you see that these exercise interventions help with that so there's long term structural changes in bone but whether whether that means you see what you'd expect in terms of osteoclast and osteoblast activity is, is another question um, because it's not quite clear yet how the short-term changes in those markers relate to the longer-term changes in bone. Right. Um, although it would make sense that more bone formation and less bone resorption would lead to bone growth, Yeah. That it, it's a little bit more complex than that, and that might not quite be the case.
0: Okay. So there's a lot of unknowns still, especially in the low energy availability group, which might yeah. be quite large. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So... Um, I know it's difficult, but if you were going to let's take a, a healthy runner. Um, let's say it's it's a woman, and you know she has a healthy um, body weight and a healthy, regular menstrual cycle, and she's a recreational runner in her thirties. Let's say, um, what would you recommend she do um, just to try and um, make sure that she stays healthy?
1: Not using a hormonal contraception. Obviously. Okay. This woman. No, right. she, I presume that in the example she's not, is she?
0: Um, exactly. Yeah, because otherwise her her we wouldn't know what her menstrual cycle was because the 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 yeah, pills yeah. just messing it up.
1: That would be that would be a first port of call. Would just a okay. check if they've come and told you they've got a regular menstrual cycle. First port of call would be is that without is cord it cord? a fake yeah. one? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so in that situation, I would suggest that they start um doing some sort of impact loading. To start mm-hmm. with, it might be just jumping on the floor and then mm-hmm. you could progress by jumping off a box and you progress by doing it with some weight and some multi-directionals and some hops and things like that. But for 10 minutes, maybe every other day to start with, something like that, and then build up gradually. Um, and that would be in someone like the example that you've given that seems like there's there's no danger of low energy availability there they're healthy, they're not losing weight rapidly, their, their menstrual function is fine. Uh, they don't get bone stress injuries. Mm -hmm. Um, if the opposite was true, then it's highly likely that adding more impact to the bone is, is not going to be beneficial. So it depends on the person you're looking at.
0: Okay. So if we take that same person and say that, um, are you know, healthy weight and training and they're doing all right, but, uh, they have menstrual, cycle disturbance and they know because they're not taking the pill mm-hmm. uh, but it's not regular what what what's the course of action for those people
1: yeah first port of call would be to take measures to increase energy availability resume that menstrual function probably for a few cycles consistently before you start in, in putting any loading additional loading onto the bones um,
0: do, they, do they need to reduce their expenditure do they need to stop training for a while until they get their menstrual function back or can they keep training and just try and eat more again not
1: necessarily they could just continue training and, and eat more um it depends how much they're already training um what situation they're, they're in context um how long they've haven't had their menstrual cycle for how many injuries they're getting and, a whole host of other things, so it okay. really depends how severe the situation is. If if they've just haven't had their last couple of cycles, then then they could probably carry on training and just focus on trying to increase their energy intake.
0: And is a nutritionist the best person to work with here? Is it the family doctor? Because I am always a little bit um, unsure where to go when I think this is going on. Like, who do I get help with this from? What What yeah. do you think? It's difficult. Again, it depends on the reason why their
1: energy availability is low. Um, If it's low because, you know, it's just inadvertent, you know, they just exercise a lot and they've just accidentally failed to eat enough for a prolonged period of time, which I would suggest is probably really common if you exercise a lot. Um, But if it's deliberate, then um, perhaps just your regular nutritionist, unless they've had specific experience in dealing with that before, might not be the best place or a nutritionist in conjunction with, with a psychologist might be a better route. Uh, so it
0: depends why. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's a sign of a problem. It's a symptom. And it's like, okay, what's causing this symptom? Because, you know, the other thing that you talked about in your um, in your studies was, uh, you know, problems of eating disorders and other such things. And, you know, you, you mentioned, I think, at one point that, you know, particularly in young and, and more so, female athletes, but it could obviously happen to men as well. That, um, you know, they, they have uh, eating disorders potentially related to psychological issues. And then that's manifesting as bone stress injuries. But the, I mean, the bone is way down on the problem list. And, and they really mm-hmm. have to go back to, okay, why are you not eating enough? And then it's like, okay, what, what is going on with um, any kind of uh, mental health? Um, situation that it's leading to this sort of trickle down effect that's manifesting is something that would seemingly be unrelated to that.
1: Exactly, yeah. For someone
0: who who
1: doesn't have that, who hasn't been given or provided the opportunity to get that sort of knowledge of uh, how energy availability and what you eat links with bone health, then it, they would certainly seem completely unrelated. You know? mm-hmm. and in the true case, that's probably in you know, a direct cause in some people.
0: I think the big takeaway for me, you know, from reading your work and learning a little more about this recently is that women of all ages, unfortunately, need to track their menstrual cycle quite, um, quite deliberately and, and keep an eye on it. Because if you're, especially like if you're a, a teenager and you're, let's say, running track at college. And you start having menstrual cycle disturbances, you, you really need to nip that in the bud then because, you know, as your skeleton is developing and your body is sort of developing, that's when you need things to be at their most optimum, especially if you're wanting to do five or six years of heavy training and performance, then you can't really afford to let that become uh, just a sort of lingering issue.
1: Absolutely. And that, that's a really big issue because the most of bone development occurs within the first say sort of three decades of life um and beyond that like everything else you're just battling to slow the down. <laughs> um so not only if you if you if your issues are happening right in the you know your teens um not only are you possibly getting bone stress injuries then but you're, you're increasing the risk of having hip fractures because of osteoporosis when you're you're 60 or 70 um so it's a it's a lifelong lifelong issue really that can start right in your teens very be very difficult to recover if it goes on for long enough
0: and as much as that might be a bit of a pain it's can be very helpful you know if you've been tracking your cycle for five or six years and you've been fine and then you start having issues um, mm. and you can talk to your doctor about it, you can say exactly when it happened what was going on in your life what might be contributing to it and you, you might be able to dial in on that you know that why you were getting to earlier a lot easier if you've got that you know backlog of information like i know this really well now and I know this is not normal, and and it coincided with uh, you know a diet, or it coincided mm-hmm. with an increase in training load, or it co- it coincided with you know getting uh, splitting up with my partner, or something like that. It could be easier to find the why.
1: Absolutely, yeah. You, I think you said unfortunately when it, you said tracking, but um, you know they've got that marker, and it's really easy to track your menstrual. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not difficult. There's apps. Where you just press one button each day when you right. come on, you come on your period, and like you said, then if, if something starts to look a little bit different, you can match it up with your calendar. Yeah, this started mm. here. Maybe that's the reason. Yeah, really, really useful and really easy to do. So, yeah, I would encourage anyone and everyone really to, to track it because there's no downside.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that would as well. Like just for any clinicians listening, just kind of getting used to saying, you know. Okay, what's it like? Is it regular? And are you tracking it? And how? And I think that's it. It would be easy for us if it just becomes more normal and common, mm-hmm. and you know, people get used to being asked by their doctor and their physio and their dietitian or who, their psychologist, whoever they happen to see. How's your menstrual function? This tells us about uh, you know energy availability. This is relevant, and I'm not just being you know that You're weird.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think. I would say that more often than not that the awkwardness probably comes from the practitioner or the Mm. physician rather than the other way around. I think if you ask it openly without any sort of any reaction, like it's completely normal, it will be responded to like it's completely normal because, because it is. And I don't think any women looks at it in any way other than that. I know because I have to talk about it to participants um, when they first come in, when I first met them all the way through the study and never had any sort of Right. Well, why do you want to know that or anything like that it's mm-hmm. just 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 straight up yeah this this is when I came on my period this is how regular I usually am no no sort of hesitation about it
0: and so that's the the number one thing is track your cycle and mm-hmm. uh, number two would be potentially include uh, jumping exercises on a regular basis uh, is that provided you're not having issues or is that just you know across the board
1: I would say definitely provided you're not having issues um, so I like think I mentioned earlier. If, if you're already having issues, then firstly, the main thing to address is the energy availability. But also, depending on how long you've been in that state, if your bones are already weakened and you're you're still running, if you add more impact onto that, you're just going to increase the likelihood of a stress fracture, not reduce it, because you're just um, adding to that accumulation of areas of weakness and, and micro cracks and, and things like that.
0: This has been. Very, very helpful. And I'm look for, looking forward to sharing this with a, a number of clients and, and with you know, the listeners at large. So thank you very much for your, for your time today, Mark. Um, if someone wants to sort of follow your research and keep an eye on you, where would they go? And uh, do you have any final thoughts that you know, we didn't touch on that you wanted to sort of let people know?
1: Um, I think we, we spoke a while there about um, being on, on the contraceptive pill and how you then don't get that signal for menstrual function. Um, by no means would I advise not going on the pill if you're going on it for birth control reasons of course that's the primary reason to go on the pill and if that's what you want to do you should carry on doing it but I just in, in everyday life have come across a lot, of, a lot of young women who tell me that their doctors have told them to go on the pill to regulate their cycle right. because their cycle is not regular at that point if that's the only reason you're on it then in my view you shouldn't be you should come mm-hmm. off it and then address the problem uh, All so you that,
0: did was unplug the light on the dashboard, or you you put some tape over it, and then look, yeah. it's fixed. <laughs> yeah, bodged
1: it, Bodged it. Yeah, absolutely. So that that would be my that, that popped okay. into my head. And I didn't get opportunity to say that. So that'd be the yeah. last thing that I would say uh, in terms of following my work and, and what I do. Um, I'm reasonably active on Twitter, but that's about it. Yeah, okay.
0: Um, um, I'll put links it. to that in the. I'll put links in the description to your to your Twitter and your your research gate as well, and um. Yeah, thank you. It was. Uh, this has been very, very interesting and helpful, and uh, I look forward to you know, following your work in the future and reading more that you guys come up with, see if these things do help, these interventions mm-hmm. that you're, you're working on. And uh, yeah, it's, it's really exciting, so thank you.
1: No problem. Thanks very much. Thanks for taking the time to listen to me. It's a pleasure to talk about it.